Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for May 2015. I'm Jay Swartz, Acquisitions Editor for the Journal. The current issue of ACS Chemical Biology comprises 21 articles, including a paper by Matt Hartman, who reports a new approach to target protein-protein interactions. I have Matt here on the phone to tell us more about the article. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jitesh. So first up, why is targeting protein-protein interactions mediated by phosphorylation a problem? Well, since most of these protein-protein interactions are triggered by phosphorylation, that means that phosphorylation is an on-off switch. And so the corollary to that is that the actual phosphate is really important in recognition and in binding of these interfaces. And that would be fine if we could just make an inhibitor that had a phosphate, but putting phosphates on inhibitors has a couple of um, really significant drawbacks. The first is that our cells are full of phosphatases, and so the phosphate groups are not stable. And the second is that the phosphate groups, in most cases, prevent the inhibitor from entering and passing through the cell membrane because of, of their negative charge. And so for these reasons, people have really tried to develop phosphomimetic peptide inhibitors. And with phosphoserine in particular, which is the focus of my paper, this has been really uh, challenging to do. Phosphoserine is a very small side chain. It has two negative charges. It's really hard to find things that mimic mimic it. And the best mimic so far um, has been the difluorophosphonate group, and which is a really nice rational substitution. It solves the phosphatase cleavage issue, but it doesn't solve the cell permeability issue. And just very recently, there have been a couple, there's been one paper actually, where they've made a prodrug of this that has been able to pass through the cell membrane. So that's some interesting and exciting work. But these compounds are challenging to make, not accessible to everyone. And there's still a lot of, of proof that needs to be, a lot of things that need to be work on, worked on to see if that will be a general approach. Sure. So in your paper in ACS Chemical Biology, you present a strategy to discover new phosphoprotein-protein interaction inhibitors. Could you briefly summarize your approach? Yeah. So rather than take a rational design approach, we decided to create a really large collection, a really large library of peptides. And our thought was that if we could make a library large enough, we might find some novel solutions to the phosphomimetic inhibitor problem. And so, um, first of all, let me just briefly talk about the target. We chose uh, breast cancer-associated protein BRCA1 as our target. It's a DNA repair protein, and the C-terminal domain of this protein is a a well-studied and well-known phosphoprotein binding partner. Uh, We chose it because it's important for DNA repair, and there's some implications there in cancer, but we also chose it because other people have tried to replace phosphoserine with other phosphomimetic groups, and it's failed in this particular domain. So we thought it would be good to try our library approach on this um, interesting target. And the way that we make our libraries is, is interesting. It's using a technique called mRNA display. And the way that this works is we use the E. coli machinery of translation, and we put in a library of messenger RNAs and attached to each one of these library members is an antibiotic called pyromycin. And pyromycin actually allows a co-translational capture 
of the nascent peptide that that particular mRNA is creating. So if you can imagine a test tube filled with a library of trillions of different messenger RNAs, at the end of the experiment, each of those messenger RNAs is covalently attached to the peptide that it uniquely codes. And what this allows us to do is not only make a library of peptides, but because we have this messenger RNA template um, for each peptide, it allows us to amplify the signal of those that, we, um, that are functional. And so the way that the selection process works is we first create our library, we immobilize our protein, in this case the C-terminal domain of BRCA1, we mix these things together, the peptides that are captured onto the the protein. We can then amplify on the messenger RNA part. And we go through these cycles of amplification and capture, amplification and capture. And at the end of the day, we hope to have a peptide that binds tightly to our target. Now, in this case, we did not include any phosphorylated amino acids in our library. We did include some interesting unnatural amino acids that we thought might help. It turns out that they actually didn't help so much, although they have in other cases. And so we created this library, we did the selection, and at the end we found several families of peptides that appeared to be functional and binding to this domain. Um, we took one of these and we crystallized it, co-crystallized it with a BRCA1 protein. We found that it actually solved the binding problem in a very interesting way. So instead of a phosphoserine sitting in the binding site, this peptide had a glutamic acid, which is also negatively charged, that reached into the binding site. What was surprising about this is other people have tried that exact substitution, phosphoserine for glutamic acid, and those peptides didn't bind at all. So what was unique about our peptide is that it did have a suboptimal phosphoserine to glutamic acid mutation there. But along the edges of the peptide, we picked up additional contacts with the protein, contacts that had never before been seen in other peptide binders to this protein. And so these contacts compensated for the weaker binding interaction of glutamic acid in the phosphoserine site. It also made our peptide fairly selective um, for BRCA1 versus other proteins. Oh, that sounds good. And uh, just lastly, was this peptide then functional in cells? Yes, it was. So we, um, we overexpressed the peptide as a fusion to GFP inside some glioma cells. Cells that are undergoing DNA damage um, are known to have nuclear foci, which are little centers of DNA repair activity in the nucleus. And so when we overexpressed our peptide in these cells, we found that the number of these foci increased relative to cells that expressed GFP alone. Uh, this is exactly what we'd expect to see if BRCA1, which is a DNA repair protein, was inhibited. Furthermore, when we irradiated these cells, with sublethal doses of radiation, the foci went further um, up relative to GFP control cells. And th this is exactly what we'd expect to see if our peptide was blocking a protein-protein interaction of BRCA1. So we were happy to kind of put this whole story together in, in this ACS chemical biology issue from the selection to the crystallography to the um, functional, functional assays in cells. Sounds good, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Our next author for today is Miriam Gauchin, who reports a potent new inhibitor targeting HIV. Hi, Miriam. Hi. So first up, uh, could you begin by commenting on where we stand with regards to currently available drugs against HIV? Um, yes. There are about 
30 individual drugs that have been approved for treatment of HIV, and they fall into a few distinct classes based on the target. Most of them, in fact, are protease inhibitors or reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Uh, these are post-entry inhibitors, uh, and they are the backbone of combination therapies that are used to keep HIV at bay. Um, none of the treatments is a cure for HIV infection, um, as you probably know, because the, uh, uh, of the integrated uh, HIV DNA in memory CD4-positive T cells. There are also two HIV integrase inhibitors that have been recently added to the arsenal and two entry inhibitors. One targets CCR5, which is a cellular receptor required by HIV for entry, and the other one is T20, a peptide inhibitor of HIV fusion. It targets GP41, which is in fact the protein uh, that is the subject of our study. Okay, so your paper published in ACS Chemical Biology describes peptides, which are potent inhibitors of HIV infection. Could you briefly talk about the underlying reasons for the potency? Yes, it's known that peptides from helical regions of GP41 inhibit HIV fusion. That's been known for 20 years, perhaps, or more. Um, but by way of background, uh, the GP41 protein is a trimer, and it has an extracellular domain that contains two helical segments, uh, which I call the NHR and CHR. Many scientists uh, call them that way. Uh, the NHR is at the trimer interface, and it forms a coiled-coil structure uh, in the protein. During the process of fusion, there's a conformational change in which the CHR segments wrap down the sides of the coiled coil, and it forms a trimeric uh, hairpin, a trimer of hairpins structure. Uh, the inhibitory peptides inhibit the formation of the hairpins, and the most potent are the CHR peptides. Uh, for example, T20 is a CHR peptide with nanomolar potency against fusion, although resistance develops quite rapidly to that drug. NHR peptides have not been as effective and are not as much studied because typically they're micromolar inhibitors uh, unless the peptides have been stabilized into a trimer form, and that's usually done by addition of an extra, uh, exogenous protein domain or by some type of chemical or design modification. So what we set out to do actually was to create a modified version of the extracellular domain. And we swapped the order of the NHR and CHR segments and placed a short loop at the opposite end of the hairpin. Our rationale was to examine exposure of a conserved hydrophobic pocket on the coiled coil that is a known drug target. Uh, for example, there are D-peptides that inhibit the hydrophobic pocket and are nanomolar to sub-nanomolar inhibitors of HIV infection. The pocket is not exposed in constructs containing the normal order of the NHR and CHR domains. We went ahead and constructed six different proteins, and we varied the lengths of these NHR and CHR segments, and were able to get low nanomolar inhibitory potency uh, if two conditions were met. Uh, one was that the NHR needed to be a full 50 residues in length, and the second one was that the CHR had to be truncated so that the hydrophobic pocket was exposed. 
it didn't matter how long the CHR was, the constructs were equally potent. So therefore, it appeared to us that we were looking at a mechanism where the NHR is the fusion inhibitory determinant, even though we didn't add a trimer stabilizing features to our proteins. So to understand this further, we did some biophysical studies with analytical ultracentrifugation and CD. Uh, we found that the highly bioactive 50-residue-long NHR-containing constructs were highly helical and trimeric. If we truncated the NHR even by 5 or 10 residues, constructs became minimally helical and lost potency. Uh, so we were able to conclude that the NHR-NHR intermonomer interactions at the C-terminal end stabilized the trimer form, and the trimer form is required for activity. So we conclude, therefore, that the inhibitors are uh, likely to act as decoy NHR trimer binding surfaces for the viral CHR, preventing the progression of fusion. The second part of our study was to consider how the full-length NHR coiled-coil groove could be exposed. If, in fact, our 50-residue constructs are trapping viral CHR because the design and the very high observed helicity suggests that these constructs should be folded into hairpins, and that would include at least half of the proposed binding surface. So following on literature observations, we investigated the role of a membrane mimetic in potentially destabilizing the hairpins because the fusion reactions occurring near a membrane, we observed significant reduction in melting temperatures in the presence of DPC and at the same time had two-thirds residual helicity after the melting transition. We interpreted this data to suggest that the NHR trimer is maintained while the CHR unfolds during the melting transition, and that this state is more readily sampled in a membrane environment. And we suggest, therefore, that the presence of the membrane triggers the active state of the inhibitors. This uh, concept of unraveling of CHR to expose active inhibitor was further supported by complete inactivity of hydrophobic pocket-covered constructs. We found that we got very strong hairpin stabilization by hydrophobic pocket interactions with no possibility of unraveling to expose the NHR, and these constructs were completely inactive. It also demonstrates the crucial role of the hydrophobic pocket in the fusion reaction. Um, and then very finally, the activity of the swap domain constructs appears to be greater than the sum of their components, which is the NHR component and the CHR component. And it might, this might suggest that the CHR is playing a role in activity, possibly by binding to a nearby viral NHR. Even if this binding is very weak, uh, it would create a multiplicative effect on potency. A simple alternative explanation, however, may be simply that our constructs have greater solubility than constructs with a fully exposed NHR, which is quite hydrophobic. Right. So to conclude then, what would you say are the main advantages of these peptides over those previously reported? Uh, I would say the advantages of the inhibitors discussed in the article are uh, to prevent initial infection of healthy cells because they're entry inhibitors, uh, to 
limit development of resistance by focusing on an alternative target to currently used drugs. We expect the resistance profile of NHR inhibitors to be different from that of CHR inhibitors like T20. And furthermore, it is known that the hydrophobic pocket is structurally important and highly conserved, even when the virus is challenged with CHR peptides that bind to this pocket. And then thirdly, uh, these entry inhibitors, such as the, the ones discussed uh, in the article, have the potential to prevent a major route of dissemination of HIV, which is the cell-to-cell uh, transmission of infection, uh, where infected cells can transmit infection to bystander cells without going through a free virus uh, intermediate. It is known that HIV entry inhibitors are particularly effective in inhibiting the cell-to-cell -cell mode of transmission, although I have to uh, admit that we haven't actually tested that specifically with our inhibitors. It has been observed um, with T20 and CCR5 inhibitors. That sounds good, and thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at pubs.acs.org forward slash journal forward slash ACS Chemical Biology. Thanks to all of you for listening.